Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, four-day workweek proponent, Jamie Savage, talks about how her company's productivity has doubled with staff working four-day weeks. BC Credit Counseling Service President Scott Hanna has some good tips on how to maintain a good credit score. And UBC bee researcher Dr. Leonard Foster tells us about a new virus threatening bee populations and what we can do to help. So, let's get started. The line between work and home blurred, uh, well, it has been for a couple of years now. Many employees across the country experiencing burnout, so much so that a recent study found that the majority of us are willing to work for four days for the same amount of pay. Some of the, some places in Canada, this has been going on for a while, but here in BC, uh, there are some companies participating in a brand new pilot program uh, called Four Day Week Global uh, that, uh, well, could prove to be very interesting. And the reason we bring this up this morning is because of our next guest who's back with us to talk more about something that she talked with us at least a year ago jamie savage is back with us from toronto jamie runs an outfit called the leadership agency it's a recruitment company in toronto and her company adopted a four-day work week back in october of 2020 at uh, and uh, the reason at the time jamie i can remember telling us to uh, it's about mental well-being for employees in the workplace one of the first in Toronto to adopt the model. Now more and more Ontario and Canadian companies are moving in that direction. Let's find out how two years plus into the program, things have worked out. Jamie Savage, good morning. Welcome back. Good to have you back with us. Good morning. It's so good to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, it's uh, been a while since we talked, Jamie, but the last time we talked, it turns out we're talking about exactly the same thing we're talking about this morning, but a little more into the experiment to the point where it's not an experiment anymore at your company at all, is it? It's the way of doing business now. Absolutely. We have actually just gone through an exercise in Q1 of this year where we have completely written rewritten, I should say, our employee contract to state that we are, in fact, a four-day work week. We've gone beyond it being uh, an experiment. We are now officially in writing a four-day work week company. Well, you know, I was looking at this pilot project, Jamie, that's coming up, and, and what happens is that Canadian companies uh, will be, uh, they join up and get mentored by uh, an American company that is already doing the four-day work week, so there's some kind of model, some kind of template to follow. But this is the, this is the part that gets me, and the, I don't know that everyone understands it, and I want to find out how you do it. According to this, quote, the workplaces will reduce the work week to 32 hours over four days instead of sticking to 40 hours within four days. Uh, This uh, model, employees receive 100% of their pay for 80% of the time while maintaining 100% productivity. This is, from many listening, Jamie, it's pure bonus because one would expect four 10-hour days and not four four eights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... There's enough um, studies done now to, to prove that, you know, you don't get more done in a more amount of time, per se. Like, it, it really does come down to maximizing productivity. Like, for example, you know, in having enough time now to actually quantify and measure our decision to go to a four-day work week, we have now been able to measure that our productivity across the company has risen to, 20, to 200% 
more than it was when we were a five-day workweek company. Our revenue has more than doubled, and we have um, expanded into global markets as well. So now we operate all throughout North America and the UK. Our retention across the board is higher and stronger than it ever was. We've increased our compensation 3 to 5% across the board. And, you know, we continue to grow our team as well. And we just were awarded one of the best workplaces in Canada. So I think that, you know, the model in which you subscribe to in doing this, there's going to be different models out there. Sure. But what we've done is we've never asked for anything in exchange. So we've never asked for less vacation or a deduction in their comp. We haven't increased the hours. We've simply said we're going to give you back this time for what our original mission was, which is um, well-being and being sure that our team has the right amount of time to invest in themselves. So have you found that uh, your your employees are working four, eight, fourth, eight-hour days instead of four, ten-hour days as the model would suggest? And most people, well, I'll do a four-day work week. I mean, I'm going to have to suck it up and do a couple of extra hours a day. But I like the idea of a three-day weekend. That's very appealing. Your people don't work ten-hour days, do they? No, they don't. We work regular business hours, Monday through Thursday. There's going to be times where maybe there's even less work to do to get the job done. Sometimes there's more, but we don't track hours. We don't require the employees to track hours to ensure that there's enough hours being clocked. We make sure that the job gets done. Sure. Jamie, are most of your people working from home or are they back at the shop now? Everyone's virtual. We are 100% work from anywhere culture. Okay, so that uh, and you're how then are you able to measure productivity? Because you said there's been quite a spike, a consistent spike upwards to up to an increase of 200 percent in some cases in terms of employee measurable employee productivity. How do you measure it? Yeah, so what we measure is things that um, contribute to output. So right now what we're looking at and evaluating very closely is we're in the business of recruitment. So we, we measure our productivity by the amount of jobs that we go to market with and the amount of jobs that we close. So right now, our team is closing about 100% of what they go to market with. Um, before the pandemic and before being a four-day company, we were hovering at about 60 to 70%. So we were taking on more work and closing less. Now, we're taking on a little bit less work, really good quality work, uh-huh. and closing almost 100% of it. Um, and now what we look at in terms of, of revenue and what it takes to you know, contribute to the increase in revenue is our deal sizes, the time it takes to close these rules, and so on. So well, there's three major measurements that we use to evaluate productivity. Jamie, in Ontario, they just had an election uh, that uh, Mr. Ford and his conservatives handily won whacking huge majority. One of the, the big loser was Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals. Mm-hmm. But one of his campaign planks was the idea of a four-day work week. If you know, you vote for me and everybody gets a four-day work week. How, <laughs> how much, if at all, was a four-day work week uh, an item in the election chat that's just gone down? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I reached out to, to the Liberal campaign and said, hey, if you have any questions and want to know from, you know, a woman in business and, you know, a bootstrap startup on how this is actually done and if you have any questions, reach out. But I never heard from the camp, so we'll see. But from what I understand, that platform, the their model was going to be a trial and it was going to be on a very specific sector of um, their own government um, to use as a trial. So sure. I don't really know what plat- like what um, 
their model was going to be. So I don't know. I think at the time, to be honest, it was a bit of a buzzword and it didn't really land or go anywhere. A a shiny object to to be thrown up for possible um, uh, distraction techniques uh, during the election campaign. So do you get people, and I asked you this question a couple of years ago, do you still get people calling you up out of the blue going, so you're the woman with the uh, four-day work week company. (laughs) How's that going? And how do I get my company to where you are? Yeah, you know, interesting that you brought that up because at the time when you first, you know, brought that up as a question, there was a lot of curiosity around what we were doing and how we were doing it. And I, now that I think more time has passed and there's a lot more discussion, a lot more like rigor around actually doing this, that curiosity has switched to more intention now. So now I have people reaching out saying, tell me exactly how you did this. Right. What were the steps you took? And, um, you know, what are your suggestions for our company? So now it's turned into more of a consultant um, level conversation saying, this is what we've made the decision to do this or to try it. How do we do it exactly? Versus tell me more about why you did this. So, the, the temperature has changed from curiosity to intention. Interesting. And so that means so a lot of people are a lot more closer to closing the deal on the four-day work week. Just off the top of your head, Jamie, what are the businesses or, or uh, sectors of the economy in which this simply wouldn't conceivably work? I, the truth is, I, I don't know the answer to that question, except for the fact, you know, my, my opinion on that is that I think there's different ways to do this for every company and every in, in different sectors. I think that a one-size-fits-all model isn't going to work for right. everyone. That's, that's not the nature of this. So I think that um, my recommendation to any company and, and any sector wanting to do this or learn more is my recommendation is to trial it. Give it a, a start and a finish. So whether it's three months or you know six months, whatever you may want to look at in terms of quantifying that time period, is look at what does work for your company, what didn't work, and what blind spots you have, and what areas of um, you know you know where you can improve because it's not going to work for everyone. I think there's you know an opportunity to rotate the days so that you do have coverage for five days a week. I do my my recommendation to anyone is to never ask for anything in exchange, right? Like the five day a week, you know. Model may work for a lot of your people, but giving them something, um, you know, in return and asking for something in exchange isn't my recommendation. So if you're going to do it, don't ask for something in exchange of your employees, whether it's more time, less pay or less vacation. And more and more companies, by the sounds of things, and especially with this big uh, experiment going on involving countries, uh, companies rather, uh, in Canada and the United States, uh, more and more kind of this four-day week global uh, project that's underway right now, this pilot project, uh, as you say, people are have moved beyond the curiosity stage and they're closer to the implementation stage than ever before. I agree. I absolutely agree. And, you know, for, you know, a, a woman-led bootstrap startup, I think that if we can do it, I think anyone can do it. And, you know, to be fair, I think that we were one of the first companies to, to really do this back in October of 2020. And this was at a time where, you know, a lot of companies were still in the rebuild stage and recovering from, from COVID and what that, ha- you know, what impact that had on small business. So, like I said, I think that if we can do it, I think anyone can. And I think that, you know, we're not here to change the minds of everyone. If we can change the minds and help one company, then we've done our job. Interesting stuff. Well, it's great to have you back on the show, Jamie. And, and that conversation that began a couple of years ago, if anything, is, uh, is even firmer in your corner in terms of, yeah, it's the right thing to do. And, and just watching the traffic coming to your and moving in your general direction must be very satisfying. 
It is very satisfying. We're very happy. Well, thanks for getting up early and doing this with us this morning. It's great to have you back on the show. We'll talk again, okay? Okay, great. Thanks. Have a great day. You too. There's a new poll out from the folks at Angus Reid on finances, and to absolutely no one's surprise, money is still the top source of stress for Canadians, many of us feeling less hopeful about our financial futures as well, the findings from the latest from the Angus Reid organization. Uh, Scott Hanna is with us this morning. Always a pleasure to say welcome and good morning to Scott. He's the president of the BC Credit Counseling Society, and he's here to talk to us about credit scores, among other things. Scott, good morning. Morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Good to be back. Well, it's good to have you. And, you know, no surprises at all with that new stuff from Angus Reid. Uh, as inflation runs, uh, we, we just have no way of our wages keeping up with the uh, rising, escalating costs of pretty much everything out there. And, and uh, by way of not keeping up, a lot of us are leaning more and more on credit, Scott. And that is, uh, well, that's, that's a, could be a pretty slippery slope. It is for a lot of people, because the problem is the fact that when we're using credit, we don't realize the impact, the long-term impact, that each month that we go further into debt, we don't think about, how am I going to get pay this back? We think about just getting by each month, and that's problematic in the long term. Well, let's talk a little bit about credit score, because uh, uh, first of all, is it as important as pretty much everyone thinks it is? In short, it's important to have a good credit score, but it's not everything. It's more important to live within your means, have, have some cash and savings, and have access to the credit that you need as opposed to having the best credit score that you qualify for everything. Right. And, and for too many people, the thought is, well, if I take on more credit, get different credit cards, I can improve my credit score, I'll, I'll qualify for a lower mortgage, and maybe that's true. But at a certain point, it, it's, uh, it has ending returns in terms of what the, the true value of that. So it's just more important to have a reasonable credit score, pay your bills on time, and be able to sleep at night, which is important for a lot of people who are finding themselves in a very tight spot nowadays. Scott, based on your years of personal experience, how many of us are actually aware of what our credit score is? About a third at most. Yeah. And, and I would say that less than a third really understand the impact of a credit score. They understand that if you have a high credit score, it's good. But what a high credit score is, is a little murky for a lot of people. And so it's, um, you can get a copy of your credit report and, get a, and obtain your credit score to find out where you're at today. And if you've wondered, that's not a bad thing to do. Uh, you'll pay a little bit of money for that, but at least you'll understand where you're at today and if there's some some things in your credit report that you could improve in terms of if you've been a little slow in paying some of your debts, can I pay them a little faster in the future, pay them down, build up my savings? It can help your credit score over the long term, but it's important to recognize that it takes time to build a good credit score. It doesn't happen overnight. So the other thing is that while it takes time to build a good credit score, you can severely impact it in a matter of months. It's that fine double sword edge. Right. Now, one of the things that you talked about in your article in the province, and it was a good one, too, by the way, nicely done. Uh, you talk about in, in terms of maintenance of one's credit score. Uh, one of the things that we don't think about when people are evaluating the score is something called the credit utilization ratio, Scott. And that means that if you're, if you're a person with a credit card, you should not keep that card right up to the max. You should keep it well below the max. Uh, what would your recommendation? 
recommendation be? About 50% of what you're, what you're actually entitled? If you have a $10,000 limit on your credit card, try and keep your balance less than half of that. Is that good advice? We would always recommend people keep it below 50%. And in particular, if, uh, if, you, if you're carrying debt on a credit card, our advice would be you have to have a game plan to eliminate that entirely because that cost is just too high. It's one thing if you've got a, a car payment and you've got a car loan that started off at $10,000 and it's down to $5,000 now. Okay, you're paying it down. Yeah. But if you've got a credit card and you're over 50% of your balance and it's $5,000, that means that you're paying $1,000 plus a year in interest. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so almost $90 a month is coming out of your paycheck each month just for the, <laughs> the pleasure of having that balance in your account. So you've got to find a way to get it down. Scott, the other question that comes up, and it was in fact part of your column in the province the other day, and that's people who, again, due to financial circumstances, are struggling but manage to make the minimum payment every month, mm-hmm. recognizing at least that that, that keeps the, the flow of, of payments to the account consistent and current. How helpful is that? It's helpful in terms of making the minimum payment that will protect your credit rating. However, over the long term, it's a terrible strategy. Because each month as your balance goes down a little tiny bit, it means your monthly payment goes down a little tiny bit, which means that it's going to take you, depending upon your balance, decades to pay off. And so when you're making a purchase and you thought, well, great, I just bought something, it was fifty, it was half price, I saved 50%. Well, if you're making the minimum payments and you bought the item with credit, you're going to pay more than 100% of the value of that when you add in the extra interest over time. Mm. So it's important that you don't get too relaxed over this and get in the habit of just making the minimum payment. Look at your circumstances. Look at how much you can afford to pay and keep that payment the same each and every month to drive that balance down. I saw a thing in a paper the other day, Scott, uh, one of the balances on one of the bank credit cards, because uh, everything's going up, and that includes interest charges on credit cards. One of the banks is charging now 20.9% interest. You familiar with that number? I am, and that's, uh, you know, and I'm not going to uh, take a shot at our financial institutions for that, but because they're, they're disclosing it. It's up to you and I in terms of how we use our credit. We don't have to pay any interest at all on our credit cards if we choose not to. If we choose to use it for, for convenience only, track our, our, our expenditures, and make sure that we've got the funds on hand to pay it off in full each month. That's, that's, uh, that's how you use a credit card in a smart way. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to pay interest. So it's not so much about the interest, but if you are going to carry a balance for a period of time, then having a lower credit card interest rate is more important. And you can certainly apply to all of your financial institutions where a person may have a credit card and say, look, at, uh, I'd like to lower my credit, uh, my credit interest rate. Can I do that? And if they can't, they're not the only game in town. There's yeah. lots of other financial institutions. It's, um, you know, we have to really do a better job of educating ourselves and, and becoming really money savvy. Right. Scott, only, only got a minute or so left here. What about if you, you do know that your score is, well, less than where you'd like it to be? What can you do to remediate that? Find out the things that are impacting it. So if you've had some collection problems in the past, deal with them, resolve them, and in time, it'll have less impact on your credit rating. If you're that person who continually falls behind on the payments, whether it's their phone, internet, because that's reported on your credit report, get in the habit of making your payments before the due date. Just that simple habit of always paying before the due date so your creditors process your, your payment before will have a very positive impact on your credit rating. And then give it time. 
Time is a great cure It may take you a couple of years to get back to where you were, but so what? Use that time to build better money habits, build some money up in savings, and be in a better position to use credit in the future. Scott's uh, website, by the way, the Credit Counseling Society of BC is nomoredebts.org. Again, one word, nomoredebts.org. And the piece in the province the other day that caught our attention was Keeping Score Can Help Fix Your Credit Rating, written by our guest, Scott Hanna. Great to have you back, Scott. Thanks for this. Thanks, Rudy. Take care. Have a great day. You too. The story that actually I've spent a lot of time talking about bees, our pollinators are so critical to our well-being in so many ways. There's a story this week that caused us to, well, stop and read it carefully. A variant of a virus that attacks the wing shape of bees is rapidly spreading across Canada, causing beekeepers across Canada, including British Columbia, to lose entire colonies. They're calling it higher than historical losses. Talk Talking about this this morning uh, to tell us more uh, is uh, Dr. Leonard Foster from the Beehive Research Cluster at UBC. Dr. Foster, Leonard, good morning, sir, and welcome to our show. Morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. This is important information. Please tell us first and foremost what you know about this virus that is, well, really messing with with Canadian bees. Yeah, well, it, there's a lot of parallels to the story we've heard uh, with COVID over the, the years, but a, a variant of the deformed wing virus uh, has actually been around or known for um, for a number of years mm-hmm. and has probably been spreading in Canada for uh, a good portion of that time. It, it's found in virtually all provinces Um and uh, the part of the part of the issue is that it hasn't really been tracked all that carefully because we weren't uh, aware of it. So we know very well about the the variant A of the deformed wing virus, but variant B uh, is also widespread. And this recent study seems to suggest that. Uh, it might be much more damaging to bees than the other version that we're more used to. I mentioned it as a cross-Canada phenomenon. Is it more prevalent anywhere, particularly in Canada, or is it the same pretty much right across the the pan-Canadian experience? Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if we have enough data to say that unequivocally, okay. but uh, it does seem to be everywhere and at roughly equal portions everywhere. But uh, there's a lot of gaps in the data as well. So now we're talking, as you mentioned, there's a COVID comparison you're drawing here with the use of the word variant and virus in the same sentence. Now, we become accustomed to hearing sentences that include the words variant and virus. And inevitably, Dr. Foster, somewhere along the line in the same sentence comes up the word vaccine. That's a (laughs) remedy that we've come up with. I suspect this is is a, a, a virus and a problem confronting scientists that have yet to resolve it with any kind of, of remedy. Yeah, that's right. There's no uh, no parallel in bees for the way we vaccinate ourselves in humans, uh, and we don't have any drugs against these viruses. There, there are antiviral drugs out there, obviously, but they're usually very specific for a particular kind of drug like HIV. Um, so we don't have any inhibitors or uh, drugs against these viruses. The only way that beekeepers can really 
control them is by controlling the mechanism that they the virus used to jump between bees and in the case of these deformed wing viruses they have the, the viruses have evolved a partnership with uh, a parasitic mite called varroa destructor and that mite uh, can jump between bees and in doing so can transfer the virus uh, or viruses and really the viruses that the mite carries are are arguably quite a bit more damaging to the bees than than the parasitization by the mite itself. So it's very analogous to the way uh, malaria, dengue fever, those kind of things move between humans uh, by mosquitoes. And in that case, too, if we can control the mosquitoes, we can keep down the transmission of uh, the disease. So that's really the only tool that beekeepers have is to uh, try to control the the mites and therefore also prevent the viruses from moving between bees. I've been talking a lot about the bees on the radio for many years, Dr. Foster, because I understand to some limited degree the importance of the pollinators in the big life cycle. Uh, If I'm a beekeeper here in BC and this uh, dealing with the reality of this virus, am I in danger of being wiped out? And if not, what can I do to make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, uh, there are a number of beekeepers, uh, both in BC and in elsewhere in Canada, who have lost uh, a very large fraction, and in some cases, all of their colonies. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only, only the, the best approach to try to uh, avoid that is really to be on constant lookout for signs of these diseases. So the deformed wing virus itself, uh, as you mentioned in your intro causes the wings of bees to be deformed and, and beekeepers can notice this and, and therefore know that they have a virus there. Uh, there's no kind of rapid antigen test equivalent <laughs> uh, for for the virus, so they really have to be looking for the symptoms. And then at the same time, also uh, all constantly monitoring for the varroa mites and uh, if they find them, then to treat them aggressively and, and not let them get out of hand. So where does icing uh, sugar come into play? Because I saw that in the article and thought, well, that's interesting and it's inexpensive, that's for sure. Yep. So there's a, there's a principle in agriculture called integrated pest management, and this really means monitoring for diseases. And when you find those diseases, applying a whole variety of different methods. So for varroa mites, we have a a few different chemical treatments uh, that either kill or disrupt the, life, the mites life cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also management methods that beekeepers can apply that have some degree of efficacy. And, and the one you mentioned, icing sugar, basically involves dusting uh, icing sugar over your bees and uh, sort of shaking them up a little bit. Um, the bees don't like it all that much. I'll bet. But the, ice, the icing sugar uh, basically makes the bees uh, slippery enough that the mites can't hang on as effectively. So the mites fall off. And if you can separate the bees from the mites, then you, um, you can remove some of the mites that way. But none of these methods is 100% effective. So it's really a matter of trying to combine 
uh, several different ones to control the mites as best as possible. Len, can we step back from this conversation just a, a half a step, if you don't mind, and talk about what those of us with uh, access to some kind of backyard or green greenery in our lives can do to stimulate bee activity and uh, bee populations just on our own, in our own personal turf? Yeah, uh, there are are a number of approaches. One that uh, the cities have kind of taken a handle on and and, um, and taken it out of the hands of the the resident, and that is uh, eliminating the use of cosmetic uh, pesticide applications. Mm-hmm. So uh, trying to avoid putting those pesticides out there that might target the organism that you're trying to kill, but often also can impact uh, all different kinds of uh, beneficial pollinators. And uh, another approach that uh, has become fairly popular is leaving more wild spaces. So this could even be in your own lawn uh, where you maybe don't mow it as often or allow a diversity of uh, different flowers to grow. Uh, Don't pull your dandelions out, for example. Dandelions are actually one of the main sources of food for honeybees, but also several other pollinators early on in the uh, in the spring and early summer when uh, there's not as many other other flowers out there yet. So even though dandelions might seem unsightly in your lawn, they they actually uh, turn out to be pretty beneficial. I had no idea. And of course, you see a dandelion, get rid of that thing. Get it out of there now. Yeah. <laughs> it's, exactly. That's your first instinct. It is unsightly. Get rid of it. And in fact, it's beef. It's bee food. Yeah, it is. Interesting. Tell us a little bit, if you can, sir, about the beehive research cluster that you head at UBC. Yeah, so this is uh, something that I started in partnership with Dominic Weiss, who's in Earth and Ocean Sciences, and our goal was really to uh, to form new networks, new connections between people who uh, were maybe studying bees or studying something that could be applied to bees and trying to bring people together to be able to uh, answer questions that either hadn't been asked or at least hadn't been answered previously. Uh, and then in addition to that, really trying to uh, help communicate various aspects of bee health, uh, bee management to the broader public. So it involved um, <clears throat> giving public talks uh, outside of UBC, in some cases hosting uh, international speakers at UBC where uh, the, the talks were open to the public to try to uh, bring greater awareness to bee health issues. All right. So healthy pollinators, healthy environments, healthy communities. And that's all part of what the beehive.ubc.ca is all about. That's the web address if you want to learn more about what our guest and his colleagues at UBC are up to. Dr. Leonard Foster, continue the good work, sir. We hope you're able to identify more um, uh, effective ways of dealing with this virus. Thanks so much for doing this with us this morning. It's greatly appreciated. All right. Thanks for your time, Sterling. Dr. Leonard Foster, the senior academic researcher at UBC's Beehive Research Cluster. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.